Welcome to Get Found, Get Funded, a podcast all about creating visibility, paths for growth, and opportunity for entrepreneurs. We focus on those entrepreneurs who are statistically underrepresented in the startup ecosystem. Your hosts are Zena Island, president of X Plus PR, a media relations agency, angel investor Aurelia Flores, managing member of Athena Digital Media Group, a digital marketing agency, and angel investor Christina Francis, president of Esteem Logic, an information technology, consulting, and training firm. In each episode, you will meet a new startup founder, hear about their company and where they are now. We then focus on one key challenge facing that entrepreneur, a challenge that is common among startups. Each episode also features a guest expert to weigh in on the challenge. Welcome to Get Found, Get Funded. Hi, this is Zena, your co-host, and thank you for joining us for an, on another episode of Get Found, Get Funded. And today's theme is scaling your startup after success. According to the National Women's Business Council, the three biggest industry trends when it comes to women-owned businesses are wholesale and retail, which accounts for one-third, professional science and technology, which accounts for 10%, and everything, af after, everything else after that falls into single digits. Fortunately, our next guest was smart enough to pick one of the biggest growing trends in the marketplace by finding a void in the retail industry. Melanie Elturk is the founder and CEO of Alt Hijab, a direct-to-consumer fashion and lifestyle brand for Muslim women. By elevating the hijab category and creating an engaged online community of Muslim women, Alt Hijab seeks to break down stereotypes and create a global community that celebrates and empowers the Alt Hijab-wearing women. Hotel Job is the leading U.S. hijab brand, offering a wide variety of innovative and high-performance fabrics, style, styles, and designs ranging from everyday to luxury use. Hotel Job also recently introduced the Ultimate Underscarf, a garment that is worn under the hijab, which leverages specially designed tech fabric engineered for breathability and antibacterial properties. And we are also excited to bring a DC-based expert. Her name is Amy Millman, a passionate advocate for women entrepreneurs building big businesses starting small. In 2000, Amy co-founded Springboard Enterprises, a nonprofit venture catalyst, which sources, coaches, so showcases, and supports women-led companies seeking capital for product development and expansion. The success of Springboard Entrepreneurs include 17 IPOs, hundreds of high-value M&As, and a global, global community of accomplished serial entrepreneurs, investors, and influencers. During her career in Washington, D.C., she served as a lobbyist for several industry groups and was appointed as executive director of the National Women's Business Council during the Clinton administration. Amy and Melanie, welcome to the show. We're excited to have you. Excited to Thank be here. You. Well, Amy, let's start with you and give people a little bit of background on you and Springboard. So tell us a little bit more about Springboard Enterprises and why you started it. Actually, you by mentioning the National Women's Business Council, 
um, and my tenure there. Uh, that's really the the uh, launch pad for the or the springboard for the story. Springboard for uh, springboard. <laughs> uh, right. So it uh, we were uh, it, it, the National Men's Business Council is a is a government uh, entity. It's actually a commission that was set up in the 1980s um, at the urging of a lot of women business owners to look at bold initiatives that would address some of the challenges that uh, women business owners had. And in those days, access to capital was the really biggest um, obstacle because it, it used to be that women could not get a loan just in their name uh, only. They needed to have a man come and co-sign, a father or husband, and they didn't have credit in their own name. And so, um, you know, it's hard to believe that that was even the case, but it wasn't really that long ago. And so Congress passed passed a law, Equal Credit Opportunity Act, which opened up a lot of opportunities for women business owners. It took about another 20 years to start to see a critical mass. And, and at that point, we started to see um, interesting development of women who had been in the workforce who were trying to raise capital, um, not in single digits or, you know, $10,000 here or there. They were looking for a million dollars. And you don't get that from a bank necessarily. You get it from a from investors, equity investors, um, uh, as we've seen with a lot of the startups these days. But Regardless of that, access to capital was a really big issue. Spent a lot of time with that, and we found this gap in in the world of uh, equity investments that we thought we could fill, and that's when we started Springboard. And Springboard has assisted more than seven hundred women entrepreneurs in raising over eight billion dollars in investments and connecting with strategic partners and expert resources. How were you able to advise and assist so many female-owned businesses? Tell us a little bit about that process. I mean, those numbers are just a little staggering. As you said, it's been, what, less than 50 years since women were able to get credit on their own. Yeah. Well, it's actually been 20 years with us. So, you know, this is almost one woman at a time. Um, You know, I call it a talent search. We've developed a global network of experts in both business building and in the domain expertise in certain industry sectors. And and so we find out what, you know, a woman, you know, let's learn a lot about the woman's business and their vision. And then let's see if we can surround her with the right resources, you know, just in time kinds of, of advice that will help them um, take it to the next level. I, you know, it, you, you reach roadblocks in building businesses and, you know, your vision uh, usually extends a certain amount, and then you have to figure out, okay, what is the next plateau that I want to reach, and how do I get there, and who can help me get there? Yeah, and we're going to do a little mini um, experiment here today with Melanie, but before we do that, for the, our listeners who might be interested, tell us a little bit about how Springboard operates as that virtual accelerator to propel women's businesses forward and you know, what somebody who might be interested in learning more and maybe even getting involved with Springboard could expect? Well, there are a lot of ways to enter the market and a lot of support locally, in, especially in Washington, D.C. Um, we see so many people willing to help you with your idea and getting things off the ground. 
um, even getting into manufacturing if that's where you go. But the hard part is once you've established it, you've got a product, is getting it, you know, into the market in a much more significant way. And with us, we're looking for companies that have a global vision. Um, uh, and it's not that it's not that companies that are focused locally or on a very, very targeted market are not going to be incredibly successful. They're really not the kinds of companies that um, investors are looking um, at investing in. And you usually don't need a tremendous amount of money in order to get it into the market. The companies that we work with are primarily tech or life science companies are um, interested in growing. So, for instance, I'll give you an example. We work a lot with um, the brands and retailers in the fashion world, um, and they have identified for us the kinds of, of challenges that they have in growing, which is mostly technology and systems and dealing with online as well as bricks and mortar. And so we find companies all over the world that are addressing, you know, the gaps that or new ways of thinking about doing business or engaging with customers in our fashion tech program that we've worked for about six or seven years now. And, um, and so virtually, um, we recruit companies that fit certain criteria that we're looking for, and then we do a full assessment of their business opportunity, their vision, their marketing plan, and you know the ca- the business case that they've identified, and then we surround them with a team of experts who basically can help them um, plot the strategy and make connections that will help them grow. Uh, and we've been doing this for 20 years and uh, in a variety of different places, like you said, over 700 businesses. Um, I think we're up to $9 billion uh, raised by these companies. They've established you know, thousands and thousands of new jobs and, um, and contribute to the economy and uh, of many countries uh, as well. So, you know, it's been... You know, we had a we had a very simple vision in the beginning, and it's grown into a global expert network. So, Amy, this is Christina. So, first of all, I just want to thank you for all that you do for women entrepreneurs and, and just encouraging their contribution to economic development. Um, one of my favorite judging panels that I was on was actually with you at the DC Hair Hub Basket, I think a year ago. Now. Yeah, right. Yeah. And one of the things I really appreciated is the thoughtful feedback you gave each and every entrepreneur. And I think you just mentioned one entrepreneur at a time. So, just again, just thank you for all that you're doing for for women entrepreneurs. Well, and and I thank you for that because, it, you know, I find that I can't um, I can't sit through judging panels anymore where people are not looking at these companies and giving them encouragement because I think all entrepreneurs are heroes. I mean, I or sheroes as we call them. Um, you know, there are people that are out there doing things that others would say were impossible, but you've, mm-hmm. you're pursuing and driven and, you know, and ambitious and are changing the way we think about things. And I'm particularly excited about, you know, being able to be that sort of cheerleader and supporter for entrepreneurs who, you know, are just doing the hard stuff. Absolutely, absolutely. So let's 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 turn to Melanie. 
Um, and I'm really excited to hear your conversation with Melanie shortly. But Melanie, can you talk a little bit more about why you left your career as an international attorney specializing in civil rights law to start your company? Sure. Um, well, I left my legal career begrudgingly. It wasn't something I did um, out of frustration. I actually really enjoyed my legal career, and I did it for as long as I could while juggling this company at the same time. And it finally came to a head where I realized that I had one foot in, one foot out of both of these entities, and I needed to just soar through one of them. Um, so in 2016, is when I decided finally to quit my job and to move to New York City. Actually, my husband and I both quit our jobs at the same time to move to New York City and focus on the brand full-time. So it really got to a point where the brand had gotten so big that we needed to make a choice. We could no longer sustain the growth working on it half of the time. Um, so either we were going to sell it or decide that this is really what we wanted to focus all our efforts on. And... Um, and be all in. Wow. <laughs> so, so I'm married. <laughs> and <laughs> my, my, my husband also has, he's an entrepreneur and has a full-time job. So I'm just curious how that conversation went with your husband and how you came to quitting your jobs at the same time, moving to a new city, one of the most expensive cities in the United States, and mm -hmm. starting your company. How did, how did that work for you all? It was frightening. It was the most frightening decision I've ever made. My husband, who is the dreamer, and I am the realist, we're a great couple. Um, he was, yeah, he was so excited. He was like, this is it. This is what we're meant to do. Uh, we're done. We were living in Dubai at the time. He said, our time here is over. There's no more, nothing left for, well, for him, in his opinion. I was working at the international courts there, doing really well for myself, and um, I was on track to become a judge, which was a dream of mine. So it actually was, it was a very hard decision to make. Um, we just knew that we had something on our hands that was so great that if we didn't give it the attention that it needed, our community would mm. be at a loss. Mm. And um, it's that mission of empowering Muslim women to be comfortable and confident in their hijab that drives us and serving our community that drives us. Um, and also having a business, you know, that is that no one is paying attention to, having mm -hmm. a market that is underserved. And as an entrepreneur, you've struck gold when you can find an actual void in fashion. <laughs> I mean, what, that comes around hardly ever. And so to right. know that we had landed on something like this and we were receiving interest from outside investors when we had never even thought about, you know, capital or VC money at the time, we knew we were on to something. And so we decided, yeah, this is it. Let's, let's full throttle. Just let's do it. And the fact that you both thought as your mission together is so powerful. Um, can you share a little bit about your business model, about working together with your husband? I mean, I'm sure it's such a unique situation, but can you share a little bit more about that? Absolutely, sure. Yeah, I, I, I always say that it takes a very special couple to work together <laughs> because you have to really, really like that person outside of marriage. This has to be somebody you want to spend your time with. Um, 
And I think with us, we are, we have such immense respect for one another. But at the same time, we have very compatible strengths. So I pick up where he lacks and, and vice versa. He's operations and I'm creative. And so it's this beautiful balance between the two of us that covers the entire company. And I think if both of us were creative, they're both of us were just ops people, it wouldn't be as symbiotic and so natural as it is, but it just naturally is a great fit for both of our strengths. And then at the same time, like I said, that mutual respect, I have absolute trust that he is doing his best and he has trust in me that I'm doing my best. And so it just, it just works. Um, it's not easy. <laughs> we fight all the time. We've had a fight last night and made up this morning. I mean, we <laughs> fight all the time. And for me, in my opinion, in our, on our relationship, it's healthy because it's how we communicate. We don't leave anything on the table. We talk about every tiny thing, anything that bothered us or we thought one of us could have done better, we bring it up. It turns into a fight, but then we come to a nice little conclusion and we move forward. And that's in, in, for our relationship, it's healthy. Um, so to your first question, just, just bare bones operations of the business, we are direct to consumer, as you said. We are all e-commerce completely online. We do not sell our product anywhere else other than our website. And that has been the case since its inception in 2010. And the reason for that is because the Muslim population is so fragmented, particularly here in the U.S., where 90% of our customer base resides, that it didn't make sense to have our products at a retail location or for us to even have our own brick and mortar. Um, Muslims in the U.S. typically live in and outside urban cities. And so as a result, being online made the most sense in order to reach all Muslims in the country. Um, and, um, we, we manufacture everything in house. So we design all of our hijabs in house. We don't wholesale hijabs from overseas and rebrand them. These are all produced in house, handpicked prints are handpicked by me in Dubai. I go back twice a year to handpick our prints and then everything else is, is designed in house and produced either in Dubai, in India or our luxury line. Uh, right here in New York. That's awesome. So I'm, I'm sure we'll get into, dive more into your model and manufacturing a bit with Amy. Um, but before we get into that, let's talk more about your fundraising to date. So you've secured $2.3 million in seed financing to accelerate your growth. Can you talk a little bit more about your funding to date? Sure, yeah. So uh, that $2.3 million round was, <clears throat> excuse me, that was our last round, our seed round. A series seed. Before that, we had raised half a million in a friends and family round. Although there were a couple of VCs in there in that round as well, um, and it was a grind. I think fundraising is it's 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 every entrepreneur's nightmare. You don't go into entrepreneurship because you want to beg people for money or try and convince them of what a great idea you have. You just want to operate, and that's what my husband and I are best at. As operators. And so fundraising was such a chore, but when you, there's, it's also a game when you can understand who did, who the players are, who to avoid, how to pitch your story, what metrics to include. 
um, you get the hang of it. And what ended up happening with us this last round was somehow the VCs were back-channeling. I think this space is very exciting right now with the the Nike Pro Hijab. Adidas just announced that they're coming out with their own, but also the likes of Dolce & Gabbana and um, Net-A-Porte having a modest section. There's been so much buzz around the Muslim consumer, the spending power of the Muslim consumer, and how untapped and underserved this community is. And so, of course like sharks seeing blood in the water all kind of just went for us. And it was actually very easy to get the money. Although we had a very complicated close just in the way that our, our business was structured and we had to do a lot of restructuring. But um, I think we were very lucky because our first half a million round was excruciating. It took so long because it was still my husband and I working out of our apartment, and it really took people who truly believed in us, believed in our mission, believed that we could do this. And that was, to me, more of a win than this last 2.3 million round, because it meant so much to get that first yes after eight months. Um, whereas this last round, I think we had our first yes within a week or two, and we had got, we actually ended up being, it was a 2.5 million round at first, and we received the 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 yeses for that 2.5 million probably within two months. Wow. Where the first round probably took a year and some change. Um, so it's a funny process. It's I don't love it, but I've gotten to know how it's how the game is played. Do you think that the yes came early because of your education in this area and your marketing? Or what what do you think attributed to the the quicker turnaround this time than your previous round? I think it was a combination of things. We had clearly proven our weight. So with that half a million, we 4X the business within a year's time. So we had proven out the model. We had, we, our conclusion or our assumption, our hypothesis was that this consumer needs and wants this product. And if we have the capital to give her what she needs, not all of it yet, but at least these different categories within the hijab space, she will buy it and she will come back and buy even more. And she'll tell her friends and she'll tell her family. And that's exactly what happened. We forexed the business within a year. And so the metrics made sense. And you talk to any investor, at the end of the day, sure, press is awesome. Um, a, a, a space that's buzzing, great. But at the end of the day, it comes down to your numbers. And I think having the numbers in place, the being at the right place at the right time in, in where we are in the world today when it comes to this hijab or modest fashion space being so early and in infancy, wanting to get in early, that's also something we know VCs love to do. This is a very new space in fashion. Um, and also being mission-driven. We only said yes back to those VCs who were taken by our mission, who believed in what we were doing from a social mission perspective. We want people who, when our backs are against the wall, they believe so much in what we're doing that they're going to take that 3 a.m. call, if need be, and help us out. And so we were thankful and we were privileged enough to be in a position where we could choose 
strategic partners who believed in the mission. And that helped tremendously really filter through those who were just throwing money at something versus those who really believed in what we were building. I think that is so powerful. And you said earlier that you and your husband knew that this is what you needed to do and you needed to do it for the community. And it sounds like the community has responded so positively to what you're doing. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to, to really move forward into some of the challenges you're having now. Um, obviously, your role as CEO is evolving. And as you scale and grow, you have more responsibility, more strategic partnerships to think about and kind of new ideas for the business. Can you talk a little bit more about how your role is changing and what challenges you're facing now? I sure can. Oh, my goodness. I feel like my role as CEO changes daily. So yesterday, we actually just moved into a completely new office space. It's our own space. We were working out of a co-working space for a year and a half. In that time, we grew our team to 16 people. And so it was, it was time. We were taking up the majority of that space, and we're very loud, and we're very, we all love each other, and so we're throwing fabric around, and all these tech startups, and they're like, okay, it's time. So yesterday, like I said, we moved into our own office, and it already feels like a whole new company. It's crazy. Just, you know, the new setup, um, I'm already adjusting to this new way forward. And in the early days, like I said, myself and my husband were operators. All we did all day long was operate. And it was the, the nuts and bolts of the business that myself and my husband were executing. Today, I am in meetings from the second I walk in the door until sometimes 7 o'clock, although I'm usually in the office until 8, 8.30. And I, the, the only reason I stay that late is because I have to do my own operating of my own past work hours. Otherwise, I won't get any of it done. And so it's it's been this challenge balancing the work that I have to do with all the meetings I'm in, overseeing everybody that I manage and overseeing the creative team to make sure I'm not a bottleneck and things are still running smoothly. Um, but at the same time, knowing that I have all these things that I need to get done that are, that are slipping through the cracks. So that's been one of the biggest challenges. Um, I think the second one, it's a challenge, but it's also, it's exciting is building the team and knowing exactly what strategic hires are next, what makes the most sense for the business and nurture, not uh, preserving the culture that we've nurtured thus far. And culture within our, our company is, is so important. I mean, just to give you, an illustration, yesterday when we moved in, all we have are desks and chairs. We don't have any meeting room um, furniture yet. I'm sitting in an empty meeting room right now. Um, we went into the what will be the design space, and we all sat in a circle, and we said a prayer because in our faith, that's what you do. I mean, something as immense as, as this beautiful blessing Absolutely. we have gratitude for, and we show our gratitude by praying to God as Muslims. And so we all sat in a circle, and it was obviously optional because um, little less than half of our team is not Muslim. But our team is so amazing that everybody joined, and we all joined in on this communal prayer, and it was beautiful. And that is such an excellent illustration of our culture. We're a different brand. We're Muslim-owned and operated. We don't apologize for it. We don't try and hide it. 
It's in our brand DNA. It's in how we talk to our customers. We're just so authentically Muslim and we, we don't shy away from it. And so nurturing that has been something that I've done very carefully and intentionally and continuing to nurture that as we grow is another challenge that I'm faced with as we hire like crazy. Um, I think we've doubled our team in less than a year and we're going to hire five more people in the next three months. Wow. Wow. That's great. So, Melanie, you, you, you have this fast-growing company. I know we've had numerous conversations. I want to paint this picture for Amy so she can jump in about the uh, leading up to now. Um, you talked about in previous conversations about manufacturing, um, uh, keeping up with your stock. Um, uh, you talk about your team growth. Do you want to elaborate a little bit more about some of these challenges that you were you you ha- you are facing and you have been facing, so that Amy can jump in there and probably offer you some really good advice based on her experience? Actually, it's kind of interesting. This Amy, um, I, I I think the biggest challenge she's already identified, which is, you know, how do you keep the culture and still grow mm. and 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 how do you manage new people and team building? Um, it's probably one of the biggest problems. Everybody thinks that it's raising capital, which is the hardest thing, and, and the constant having to do so. But actually, it's really you know making sure that you have the right team um, to execute. Absolutely. Absolutely. Any insights, Amy? And by the way, I wish I had heard about your incredible venture catalyst, which I had never even heard that phrase before. I love that so much. I wish I had heard about Springboard far before even we were fundraising. It sounds like such an incredible place for for women to find support. So um, I love what you're doing. Well, I love but, what we're do- I love what we're doing too, um, and I love what you're doing. <laughs> I mean, I I have so many questions. I'm not even sure you know where to begin on them, but. Um, uh, I'll take a lead from you all. Yeah, Amy, why don't you jump in with your questions and, you know, um, Melanie, I'm sure, can answer them. And we'd love for this to be a dialogue and see where you guys can go with it. So I've tried to kind of do an outline here of some of the things I heard you say during this conversation that I think were really important and also educational for anybody listening to this. So the first thing you said, which sort of, uh, you know, I wrote down was your structure. And so at the very early stage when you structured your business and then you had, when you were raising money, then you, you know, had, when you did your seed round, you had to structure again. Mm-hmm. And, and so can you talk a little bit about that? Because that is so absolutely key. And we don't think about this when you're coming up with a product. You just are starting. You, you develop the product. You have a vision. You know what you want to do with it. And you know the market essentially, that you want to address, and usually there's a lot of personal reasons for it, which is why we all start businesses. But the, but then all of a sudden the reality hits. Um, you know, at Springboard we do this thing called making the business case because we found that everybody loves to talk about their products or services, but, you know, the, the business case of it, which does change often, um, 
you know, is not the thing that actually drove you to start, you know, all the operational aspects of it is not why you started the business. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, you know, if you ask somebody why they started the business, they have a story. Um, I will say, though, my husband once said is because I want to provide people with jobs. And I thought, no, that's really not why you started this business. Um, you know, it was something different, but, you know, that was a really nice thing to say. In this case, though, I'm interested in your structure and how um, and how that change happened or how you recognized mm-hmm. that you needed change. Mm-hmm. So we had initially registered our company as an S-Corp, and this is because oh. as a small business, right. S-Corporations have the most tax cuts, the most benefits for small businesses. You think, okay, great, I'm doing this great service for my business, and you know, having a background in the law, and my husband had done a ton of research himself, we decided it felt like the right decision. And at the time, it probably was. Now, we at the time... You know, as you said, you're, you you have this mission and you just want to do the work. We didn't think through, well, where will this company go? How fast will we grow? Do we want to ever raise capital? I had never even thought about that. My husband, as I said, the dreamer, you know, knew that this would be – he he still believes this will be a billion-dollar company, and he, he just knew how – he knows how big the market is. He knows how big the opportunity is. By 2030, a quarter of the world's women will be Muslim. He understood this 10 years ago. He said, no one cares about this space. No one's paying attention to it. This is going to be huge. And lo and behold, 10 years later, here we are. I never thought we'd be here. Now, when we go to raise our series seed and our investors are very keen on us um, making sure that everybody has QSBS treatment, so um, small business tax treatment. In order to do that, you have to be registered as a C Corps. Well, okay. So we, you know, had to restructure, and unfortunately, we ran into some real issues restructuring, um, partly due to some poor advice we had received from our accountants and um, other professionals we were working with, and. We had to rescind the revocation. I mean, it was a whole big mess. And so we were trying to work with the IRS and with the government and trying to just get to where we needed to be to make sure we all had this QSBS treatment. Um, and it took forever. <laughs> I mean, it held up the close for probably three months. Um, in that time, my goodness, I've, we've tried to block this out because it's the most stressful few months. But in that time, I'm trying to remember what other obstacles we ran into. There were definitely other, um, I, I'm forgetting now, but there was, there was just so much that, as you said, Amy, you're not thinking about, you're not thinking about that. And you certainly don't have the money or the luxury at that time, at least we didn't as entrepreneurs, to hire the best accountant for you. You don't even hire an accountant. You don't, you, what? You don't have an accountant, you know, aside from like whoever does your taxes. Um, we just didn't have that luxury at the time to make sure that we were dealing with the right professionals for us 10 years down the line. And, you, and know, know, any, yeah. you, know, what's, you know, what's interesting about this is that you're a lawyer. And so, right. um, and so, you know, you've, if you were giving advice to others, 
you would immediately say to them, hire, you know, don't scrimp on setting it up right the first time Mm -hmm. because, you know, as I always say, you either hire the right lawyer and accountant today and pay for it or you pay 10 times as much later on to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And actually what's funny here is I think the inverse was true, unfortunately, in our case. Like I said, I think early on it made sense for us to be an S-Corp. For taxes-wise, we got a great break. We were a small company. We were operating just the two of us, and no capital was involved, and we were breaking even if not profitable. But then when we got bigger, I think what we didn't do is we didn't we didn't we did we went with a referral in terms of the attorney who was doing our our fundraise rather than either the big name or or really doing our homework to make sure that okay well how many deals have you closed have you dealt with um, QSBS treatment before do you know how to structure this and it's funny because after 10 years of running this business, you think we would have learned that lesson. But it was after 10 years of experience under our belts that we had to learn that hard lesson. It's, um, the hardest, it's the hardest part about this is that you're, again, you're putting one foot in front of the other, you know, building your market. You're doing it to build the product and to get into the market. And speaking of market, um, so, you know, you mentioned the fact that, you know, you you had some basic stats, and you sort of knew at the market, and you knew personally based on your experience and your your engagement in in your particular community, your demographic. You know that it was a growing market. I mean, and that's important. You know, we always look at okay, you know, is it a market of one, or is it a global market, or is it a targeted market, and how you did you do. Um, even though you knew that market personally, it, was there some market stats that you were able to apply to what you were doing to make the case um, for what you were trying to do? I mean, it was, you know, it's nice to come in with a with an apparel, a, a consumer product, but you know, if you really want to build a business rather than just have a product, you have to have market research. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um... So it was today, having the research that is available today was much better than the research that was available 10 years ago when we started. But let's say, take away any, any research that market research that's out there. Here's what we knew for sure. The average Muslim woman owns anywhere between 75 to 150 hijabs. I know that because of myself, my family, and my friends. I've seen their closets. I know how many hijabs they wear. I know what everybody has. So, okay, you have this many hijabs in your closet. You also wear up to three different hijabs in one day. Maybe you're working out. You wear one hijab, and then you're going and running errands. You wear a second hijab. and Maybe at night you have something going on that could be a third hijab. So you're also wearing multiple hijabs a day. Then you look at very basic Muslim population demographics. You look at how much they have to spend. So Muslims are of the wealthiest minority group in the U.S., fastest growing population in the world. Um, and But forget about that even. Just, just look at the U.S. And now here's, here's where I knew that 
we had something. I knew that the way in which Muslims were procuring their hijabs was such a hassle. You either had to go overseas, literally, where they're sold on the street like a commodity. And as such, they're very low quality. So you have to take this trek with your family when you go overseas, wherever you may be from, <laughs> and you buy them on the street, and they're terrible quality and not in line with your American aesthetic. Or you go to the mall and you buy a neck scarf that's too thick or too thin or too see-through or not the right color, not the right fabric, and you wear that on your head. Those two options that we had for so long were excruciating. And that's all the knowledge I had in 2010. I knew how many they owned, how many times a day they wore one, and that it was difficult to find them, and that we were this huge community. And that alone was all we needed. Now, fast forward 10 years later, there's so much more out there in terms of our spending power, of how many billions Muslim women have spent in accessories over the past 10 years. And that's what you bring to the investor table. But um, it was so such a gut check. Like I said, I'm a realist. I'm a pragmatist. I'm not a dreamer whatsoever, as my husband is. I am very down to earth. And I knew what I knew, I knew from my gut because I lived it. And I don't think I would have, I don't think I could have done this had I not been my, our, our consumer. So it's very interesting, you know, because then that proves the the fact that it was easy for you, easier, I'm sure it wasn't that easy, but it was easier for you to raise that next amount of money because you had been in business, you had a track record. That's what we say. It's mm -hmm. when you have a track record, it's so much easier because then people can see the metrics, the numbers, you know, the validation, the proof. And again, as you say, more data and more information as well as market acceptance. Um, and and familiarity, so much easier on that. So you know, uh, uh, that was the next thing I wrote down was after market was track record. You have that, you know, and you're sort of w very well positioned to be the brand leader in this particular segment, which is really really important. So you know, getting back to some of the challenges that you have, the interesting aspect for me as I was listening to you was about you know, and I always look at your ability to scale, mm. and and that's not you know, is the product something that you know has a global opportunity? Um, no doubt about that. But just because the product is something that is a global opportunity doesn't mean that you're going to be successful in execution. Mm -hmm. And I, there are always two ways I look at it. And we can, you know, the first thing that I wanted to talk about was your technology and your ability to actually produce and, and manage what you're doing. And I thought to myself, okay, so the way we look at this is, okay, you're selling, you're a brand and a trusted brand that people now know and know to go to um, after all these years of doing it. And the question that I have, though, is as you scale, do you continue to build the brand, which always has a point at which it's just very, very hard to manage both the operations and the actual development and the creative aspect of it, 
um, which is why a lot of brands are sold to private equity firms uh, or right. rolled up into other where there's economies of scale in, in doing mm-hmm. the operations. Um, mm-hmm. Or do you become a marketplace um, where, you know, your brand is 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 the is the keystone of the of the operation but you take others in that that are you know smaller brands or smaller and you become the market leader um for all kinds of brands that are targeting that population and um and but the technology that drives that or the operational systems that are in place that allows you to scale either as you know, a solo brand or as a marketplace are really important. Mm-hmm. And I just wondered how you, how your vision sought that, you know, uh, considered that strategy. Absolutely. And you, I could not agree with you more in terms of setting up the right processes early on to help you scale. And that is something, that's advice that we received from fellow entrepreneurs very early on. And Ahmed, Ahmed, my husband and co-founder, he is such a technology guru, nut. I mean, he lives and breathes technology. And he, we always have this little laugh in the office. He considers us a tech company. Of course, myself and everyone on the design team laughed because mm-hmm. we were a fashion company, clearly. But, you know, that's his passion in life. And, and it's almost his hobby. It is his hobby, just looking up what is the newest technology and the newest support. Um, for not just our brand, but in general. And so very early on, I mean, we would test so many different uh, systems in order to make sure that we had gotten it right, even down to a project management tool, to make sure we got it right before the team was too big and it would be too hard to train so many people on this new system. And something that we put in place very early on in what we always thought about was how can we automate? How can we lessen the headcount so we can be a tight, lean team and anything that can be automated is automated. So when it comes to HR, when it comes to, um, you know, having, you know, like office management, um, inventory management, making sure that all of our processes are, are, are automated has been at the core of our brand and in our company since day one. Now, most creatives aren't great at that. It's not something that excites most creatives. I think it's for myself as a creative, it, oh gosh, so mundane. I don't want to think about processes or systems, but that's my husband's bread and butter. And that's why I believe that we've been so successful and been able to scale where other, I think what I've seen in this space, and you talk about being a the thought leader or the market leader, I think other brands that had a really great chance of scaling and doing really well within the hijab space were usually a team of one, and they were the creative, and they had this beautiful vision and aesthetic, but they didn't have that operational background that my husband brought to the table in order to complete that that yin and yang and you know simpatico that creates the solutions you need five, ten years down the line when you're scaling and hiring like crazy. Um, it's definitely something we're still, I think the biggest scaling issue is the actual inventory itself, which is funny because that's like the only thing my husband's not touching. <laughs> um, 
there are limitations in the market when it comes to the fabrics that we produce. And because we are a very, like, fabric sustainability and ethics in fabric is at the core of our brand due to our faith beliefs. And so we, as much as possible, limit the creation of new fabric. Um, certainly the way in which, you know, all of our factories are, are run is a huge consideration. But we work with spot markets where these are fabrics that otherwise would have gone to waste because they're defective in some way. and We can take that fabric and then discard of what's defective, which is usually a very tiny margin, and use the rest to repurpose into a hijab. But there are limitations with that. You can't scale to the way in which we need to scale with that. And so that's kind of where this push and pull is coming from right now, where we're facing the most difficulty in terms of setting up those systems. Well, that's what you meant by, you know, the manufacturing challenges. You yes. know, it's it's kind of interesting um, that that you mention all of that because, you know, we've seen so many instances where, um, you know, we've talked about, wow, this would be an interesting new addition or a new way of of uh, identifying um, the sustainability of fabrics or adding um, something onto the fabric that would allow it to be more sustainable or, or or degradable instead of being put into landfills like we see the significant problem with apparel. And, mm. uh, and yet, because it adds even pennies to the cost of manufacturing that fabric, mm. um, it's just... It's not permissible, and um, because the margins are so small in in what we're doing, and so it's a, it's a you know we've learned a lot in about six or seven years of working with brands and retailers on on how you know it all sounds like a great idea, but the hardest thing is to mm-hmm. make is the manufacturing aspect of it and keeping mm-hmm. the costs down. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you scale, costs go down, but manufacturing costs, depending on how you want to, you know, how you want the fabric to, um, you know, how is it's part of your whole differentiation um, uh, as making it sustainable or breathable or, you know, adds other costs onto everything and makes it um, harder to scale that way. Um, mm-hmm. So it's kind of interesting that. And it sounds like what you really decided to do was to build the brand um, in a, a global brand rather than, you know, morph into a marketplace. Yeah, yeah. I think we've always had, not I think, we have, we've always had that vision for the brand, for it not to be a marketplace. And the reason why is because this space, is, as I said, in its infancy, and I don't think there are enough brands out there that cater to this market that operate in a way that I'd feel comfortable to say, yes, I want you in my marketplace. Not yet. And so we want to be that brand that is at the fore of this entire industry and also leading the way and leading by example of doing good and doing right by our customer and and putting out the right message, even in terms of what hijab represents, because, um, you know, we are the custodians of, of our faith. And so it's always been brand, 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 brand. And what about, um, and what, and what about yeah. price? So, you know, again, allowing to build a brand and be the first, you know, uh, first mover 
into the space with a brand. Um, you know, it's like when Apple came out, there were other people doing things, but they had a very distinct look and brand, um, and it appealed to, you know, the demographic that they were looking at. Um, and so that recognition is really important. Um, uh, is there a specific differentiator um, about your products? Definitely, and it's funny you did say price because that is the initial differentiator up front before the customer gets the product in her hands and touches and feels it to understand, oh, that's why I paid $20. So $20 for a scarf doesn't seem like a lot of money, but $20 for a hijab in our community, although it is changing finally, is considered a lot of money because, as I said, we're used to buying these on the street, they're, they're commodified overseas, and so you get something for very little money that's very low quality. And we were of the first U.S. brand to introduce a $20 hijab, and it was novel. But it was also necessary, as you said, in order to create that high-quality product with the margin that it would allow us to sustain ourselves and to scale and grow. And it's been a challenge at times, but also... Our customer, as soon as they feel that quality, they understand. And, and education is a huge piece. We've had so many blog articles on our blog written about the cost of, of the, the true cost of manufacturing. People need to know and understand, just because you bought this for $7.99 at Forever 21, here's what, the, here's what that really means. Here's who is benefiting and who is deeply losing. And so... That education has been key, and that, again, as I said, being the example in this space, leading by example so that people know and understand we have to get smarter about the way in which we manufacture and the way in which we, we pay for things, and if that means having less of something, of higher value uh, and higher costs, then so be it. Um, but then certainly with our luxury hijabs, which was the first of its kind, in the hijab space en masse, you know, a ready-to-wear luxury hijab, usually you have to go to a tailor, a seamstress, or somebody specialized who she does these beautiful custom-made hijabs. Um, they ran from 250 to 325 and we released those last year. And that was, I mean, there were memes on the Internet about it. It was, it was absolutely crazy for our demographic to even think about. But again, it's about customer education and saying, listen, you spent at least four or $5,000 on your wedding dress. So right, wouldn't you right. put the same amount of care into your hijab that is going to complete your look? Why would you then go and grab something of terrible quality that's very cheap that will then ruin your whole look? And so it was explaining that this isn't for every day, of course, but on those very magical moments, the most important days of your lives, yes, you have to have something that's of equal aesthetic beauty as the rest of, of your outfit. And for so long, the, the mindset within our community was that hijab is cheap and it's not something we pay attention to and we don't value it. And we're trying to switch that mindset Practically, but also metaphysically, hijab is is this should be the focal point. You should take so much pride in it 
because taking pride in it to make sure that it is of high quality and it's beautiful will make you feel that way in turn. And it'll so, thing that, yeah, go ahead. Well, so that's so interesting because this leads into what we, what you said before was the challenge of maintaining the culture inside the organization, actually making sure that, that the brand is secure, sanctified, that people see your brand in a certain way, and that, that your processes are such that people, that your, that your group, basically, you know, the team that you have buys into this. Now, that's your biggest challenge, to be honest with you. Because as you grow or as you, if you do have this idea of growing and you do raise more money, which, again, brings more stress and expectations and, and uh, accountability to external people who are, who are looking for a return on their investment, that you all of a sudden things begin to erode. And that wonderful group that you have and trying to hire people who can sell for you but may not share your vision, um, you you know, there's certain sacrifices that happen with growth. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, and we find this with many founders, is the difficulty in making that transition. And sometimes especially if you take in investment capital, sometimes those decisions don't necessarily happen to be yours at the end. And how are you prepared for that potential eventuality? No, I'm not. I'm not, Amy. I'm not. I'm not prepared. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought you know, you'd it's say. Like you, it's like you said, you, you put one foot in front of the other. But correct me if I'm wrong, and please please give me the advice I need to prepare. But the, the thing that I'm the most stringent about in trying to prepare for that inevitability is who we bring on to the team. And as much as I can, for as long as I can, I want to be very involved in the hiring process because they are the custodians of our brand, and it's I think it starts to erode with people, as you said. And we go through a very stringent hiring process. It's, it's, you know, slow to hire, fast to fire is certainly our motto. And um, it's, for me, what I'm trying to do right now to help prepare for that. But it sounds like a small business, to be honest with you. And we always used to do this, you know, um, an assessment of our companies saying, what is your, you know, your control profile? Mm. And, and if you have a very high need to control the brand and to control the process in which that brand is shown to others and, you know, a certain environment that you all want to be working in, mm-hmm. um, there are sometimes, you know, it, it, you're, especially if you take in external money, um, their expectations have to be considered. And so that's yeah. why we always usually do these assessments with companies that we bring in saying, okay, you know, let's talk about your vision. Let's talk about what you see, you know, what in three years, in five years, how you'd like this to look. 
And do you want to own 100% of it and have the control over decisions and how the brand will be perceived? Or are you just want to get it out there into the world and see, you know, some and raise a lot of money so you can be everywhere with this brand? At which case, that's why private equity companies come in to own most of the brand and you can concentrate on the creation or the creative aspect of it while, you know, they scale the business. And then you have to sacrifice that Mm -hmm. whole idea of culture and the thing that you really love a lot about your business, which is working with people who are in line with your vision. And it's, you know, it's, it's inevitability, um, uh, it's not to say that you have to build a, a successful business that way, but it sounds like that's where you're going. And so the question is, do you, at this point, the money that you've raised, does that get you to a point where you can sustain this business and return some, you know, some return, give some returns to those investors where they will be happy with that? Or, um, are you going to be in a position where you bring in more strangers and who have other visions for how this company is going to grow? Hmm. Well, I think the thing that I'm most protective about, even beyond the team and the team's culture, is the, the brand voice and the brand narrative. And that's because as a Muslim-owned, operated brand, as a brand that has the name, the word hijab in it, let's just say that. So immediately, any Muslim who sees this brand says, oh, okay, this is a hijab brand, so this is for me. I'm a Muslim. This is for the Muslim community. The thing I'm most protective about is the imagery, the narrative, the brand voice, because hijab at the end of the day is a religious garment. And it's not a fashion item. Certainly, it can play. It, it can be. Um, it can be worn in such a way to accentuate your stylishness, absolutely. But it's at the end of the day, not something you wear for fashion. You wear it because out of your beliefs and your devoutness. And so, you know, I've toyed with that idea. And certainly, as as we've talked about, marketplace is not something that we're interested in, but. Being acquired, and let's say it is a conglomerate, as you're saying, what then happens to the message and the voice and the tone? And, and you know, if, if, if I'm not involved so heavily in those decisions, who is it? And how can we make sure that it's protected? And here's why. Because the second that this brand or any brand with the word hijab in it is not authentic to our beliefs, then you can forget about its success. Well, you can forget about your involvement in its success. Then it becomes somebody else's vision of the value in the marketplace for this brand. So, you know, take, for instance, you know, brands like Kate Spade, where, Mm -hmm. um, you know, Kate and her husband started this, and then, you know, they basically sold it at a certain point because – they couldn't manage the growth exponentially, and they were had taken investment capital from 
people, they had a very strong vision and a very clear design thesis, but they couldn't, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't scale it um, by themselves, and so they needed partners on it, and those partners, you know, basically took control over the company and, you know, just owned the name after a while and built their own design team that was close to what Kate had originally designed, but not, um, but not the same. And so the question for you at this juncture where you're at is, you know, what's your clear vision for, you know, the next three to five years and what this looks like? How do you have a strategy for getting there? And that's when you go out for additional capital or partners that you are clear that are aligned with your issues. Otherwise, Mm -hmm. you can't take their money and you can't partner with them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's exactly what I had touched on earlier about the investors that we took on even in, you know, a small seed round. Um, And certainly as we grow and as we go global, the same has to apply because within three to five years, our, our goal and our mission is to become the number one global hijab brand. So we're the leading U.S. hijab brand, but we, we don't have a real global presence yet outside of just shipping internationally. And when we finally do go global, hopefully after our Series A, that's when those partnerships, like you said, and the investors, the new investors that we take on have to understand it's a prerequisite. You have to come to the conversation open to understanding, and you have to be on board with the understanding that this is the, the voice, this is the mission, this is why we're doing this, and that's the only thing that matters. She's at a very important juncture in her business, and these are the really hard decisions to make, um, and there are no guarantees uh, about the people that you bring in. It sounds like, you know, often that you bring in, you know, I call them strangers into your business because they seem to align, but it's sort of like sometimes in marriage, you know, unlike Melanie's perfect marriage, I mean, there's, there's, (laughs) you know, things change, people's attitudes change. And when money is involved, it becomes very, very difficult. Um, And, uh, and so that it's, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with you and the brand. But I love the fact that you're focused on that brand, that you have a very clear vision. And I'm hoping that you're discerning about both internally the people that you bring in and the people that you bring in externally um, to support, you know, your, your vision, um, share your ideals and, uh, and all success to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I take your words to heart. And uh, we definitely will keep this going offline, I hope. Thank you, Amy. Wow. What an amazing conversation. Thank you, Amy and Melanie. Melanie, just for being so open and um, really talking about what's at the core of your business. I think we talk a lot about businesses that are near and dear to the entrepreneur's heart and have a social impact and an overall um, 
mission of really making the world a better place. And in Melanie's case, this is so integral to her faith as well. So this was a really interesting conversation in thinking about how you grow, how you position yourself well, and how you get to the next level. So obviously, Melanie and Hoda Job have had wonderful success, and there's still more to do. There's still more to grow. There's more to think about when you're raising yet another round, who you bring on, how you create those partnerships, how you think about the company and where your focus lies in making those priorities and those decisions that are very important and that will have very long range effects. We also talked about some more um, mundane things like setting up the company properly and making sure that you don't just take a referral and really do your due diligence when you bring on advisors early on, whether they be accountants or lawyers or other folks. Uh, We also talked about really understanding your market. And Melanie gave us some amazing facts and figures, which I just, I love. I was writing down statistics during the course of um, the discussion, but really understanding who your market is, what they need, And if they're not quite on board with you yet, doing education to your market to really make that place um, make sense. So lots of great lessons in today's show. We so appreciate you being with us. Thank you, guys. This has been excellent. I just We didn't want to jump in because you were having the type of dialogue that we want to see happen, hear happen. Um, on Get Found, Get Funded with our guest expert and um, entrepreneur. So thank you, Amy, for jumping in there. We really didn't have to ask you any questions. You just <laughs> you had your own, and you were able to um, decipher exactly, exactly, and target what uh, Melanie needed to hear. And Melanie, thank you for joining us, and uh, tell us where we can find you. Absolutely. We are online at hotehijab.com. That's H-A-U. P-E-H-I-J-A-B. And of course, we're all over social. So Instagram is our most popular page, Hot Hijab as well. But we're also on Facebook and Pinterest and Twitter and YouTube. And I'm very, very open and, and um, very accessible online. So feel free to say hello. I'd love to hear from anyone. And Amy, where can we find you? Uh, it's SB, as in Springboard, sb.co. Uh, and again, you can find us anywhere in the world uh, where women uh, are building businesses. Great. And as you know, you can find us on GetFoundGetFunded.com. And we are on Instagram at GetFound underscore GetFunded. On Twitter, GetFound underscore Founded. And you can always find us on Facebook as well. Thank you so much, ladies, for joining us on our show. Thanks for having us. Thank you.